The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. All right, so by a show of hands, raise your hand if you've ever broken ribs in your life. Raise them high so I can see them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Great, sixteen, maybe. My my crew, you're out there. Awesome, broken ribs. You know what it's like then to try to sleep, and you know what it's like to try not to cough or sneeze. I've broken my ribs three times. Bet you can't guess how that happened. How did it happen? Yes, exactly. 2005 was the first time playing on a Bosnian team in St. Louis as a missionary and some guy thought he was a martial arts dude just went wham, front kick out of the corner of my eye. I saw it, boom, I go down. It took all of me not to retaliate. But my Bosnian friends came and made sure I was okay. The next time was 2010 here in Michigan. We had little kids at the time, six of my kids. One was napping in the car, and my, my wife forgot to, to take him out of the car. She goes to the field. She sees me go down, boom, off to the hospital. Last time, 2017, it happened. It was a week before my, my oldest son's wedding. A week before my son's wedding, must have, uh, you know, got hit on the field because I tell, my, you know, I tell anybody that comes to meet me, don't hug me too hard because I'll just break, which is so true. But I must have come off the field. It was really hot, I remember. It was summertime. I was going to get uh, water out of a, a Gatorade bottle, squeeze bottle. I go like this, you know, and then it goes right down the back of my throat, the wrong pipe. I cough really hard. And in my laughing and crying, <laughs> I broke a rib. I did. Off to the hospital, get x-rays. You know, they, they come back. Uh, no, Mr. Bose, we don't see any, any break really, but you really have some rib deformities there. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, and then the next day, um, I get a call from the family doctor, and I'm in pain, of course, just sitting and trying to be comfortable on the couch. My wife answers the phone, and, and Dr. Gruber says, yeah, Sorry, we did find a break. He's got broken ribs. I'm sorry, you're going to have to take a 600-mile-plus trip to Arkansas in pain. Do you want some tramadol? Okay. And so uh, not only was I preaching, you know, in a few days to to do the ceremony uh, there, but I was preaching in two days here. And so I remember distinctly being in that pastor's lounge, and you you shouldn't really wrap your ribs, but they feel so comfortable when they're wrapped. So I'm wrapping them, trying not to sweat as I'm I'm preaching and wincing and all that kind of thing. And and you realize by now that when I sit down, nothing happened, by the way. I'm sitting down for a reason. I'll tell you later. But but when I sit giving a message, you know something happened to me on the soccer field, right? You you know that. And so... um, I'm, I'm in the, the service, and I, and I must have said something that day that I did break my ribs because after the service at 6 o'clock, this little unassuming lady just comes up, Pastor, can I pray for you? Sure, I'm in pain. I want to go home, but sure, you can pray for me. And so, and so where does it hurt? Well, it's just my 10th and 11th anterior ribs on my left side. It's right there, that's all. So she, she puts her hand on, on, on me, and she begins to pray boldly. And I'm closing my eyes, and here's what I'm thinking to God. Mind you, I'm a pastor, right? So here's I'm thinking to God, God, she's really nice to, to, to pray for me and so bold, but my ribs really hurt, and they're broken. 
And, and then she says her amen, and I just say really nice, thank you so much. And, and I gather, gather my stuff, and, and I go to my car, and I sit down. What's wrong with that picture of those with broken ribs? You just don't sit down when you have broken ribs. You just don't get in your car. When you have broken ribs and you try to sit in your car, you're like this. Oh, anyway, that's not going to hurt, right? But I sat down. And so I'm thinking on the drive home. I'm only five minutes away. I get out of the car and I get up. My mind starts racing now. And so all the kids that were home, Brandon was in Arkansas. Everybody get down here now. You know, what's going on, Dad? What's, what's the matter? Watch. Watch this. Watch again. Had eyewitnesses, no pain. No pain. Did you hear that? No pain. I go down to Arkansas, a 600-mile trip. No pain. My, my, my family didn't want this to happen, but, but I was going to show you a video of me breakdancing and, and doing the worm at the wedding with confirmed broken ribs. I mean, it's a miracle. It was, it was crazy. I was like... I cannot believe, God, that you would be so gracious to me in my doubt. I didn't ask for it, but this lady prayed, and all of a sudden, I'm pain-free. Now, I didn't go to the hospital to get re-x-rayed to see if it was actually healed. I didn't care because I felt no pain. It was amazing to me. That's my miracle story, and I'm sticking to it. We're, we're in a series called Signs and Wonders, and if uh, you have a different translation, for me, I'm, you know, like the King James Version guy, but I'm the NIV 1984 kind of guy. That's what's in your seats, and I hope we never change them. Uh, but that's okay uh, if we do. But, but another word for signs and wonders, it's miracle. Or works, works of God, or miraculous. So in the NIV, you hear mirac- you see miraculous combined with sign, a miraculous sign, a, a wonder. And if you think about this, all throughout history, I mean, people kind of just say, really, do miracles really happen? Or is that just stories in the Bible? I mean, there's somehow got to be a natural explanation for everything. Yeah, maybe they happened in the Bible, but did they happen anymore? I don't know. And some might classify a miracle as just, you know, those are just fortunate coincidences that, that happen. But what really defines a miracle. I'm reading this book. I'm kind of halfway through it. I think I'm chapter 7 or 8. Lee Strobel put out a book a few years ago called The Case for Miracles. Just like he put out The Case for Jesus, The Case for Faith, The Case for the Creator. I've read several of those case kinds of books. And he commissioned, as part of writing this book, a, a, a national survey put out by the Barna Research Institute. And I want you to share some of these results that, that he found. Um, because what he asked people were, do you think miracles are possible today? of Americans said yes. Now, 61% of the younger generation only believed it. The boomer generation, 73%. He asked, have you ever experienced a miracle that you can only attribute, you know, being from God? Nearly two out of five, 38% of Americans, if you extrapolate that out, that's 94 million American adults, 18 or over, are convinced that God has performed at least one miracle for them personally. That's an incredible number, isn't it? 94 million, and in fact, I just heard one uh, after the 915 service was just 
unbelievable. If you ever read this book, all you need to read from Lee Strobel is, is chapter 6, and you'll understand what I mean. It's, it, it's phenomenal. But if all throughout history, there have been skeptics. I mean, I'm one of them. You know, especially when you see some of these television, like Benny Hinn, those kinds of, of things, you know, the, the, healing, the healings that happen. Of course, people are doubtful. There's skeptics out there. There's this one from the 18th century. He's a philosopher named David, David Hume. He said this, miracles are a violation of natural law. And natural law principles cannot be violated. And he was sure of that, that miracles are a violation. He said that it's unreasonable to believe in these testimonies of alleged miraculous events and that we should reject religions that are founded on miracle testimonies. Okay, there's a skeptic for you. Then I read some more, Dr. Craig Keener. He's this um, uh, man who wrote a book, Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. I like the way he says it. Today we understand laws as this describing the normal pattern of nature, not prescribing them. Describing them, not prescribing. What does that mean? Well, just so happened to bring, you think it's a soccer ball, but it's not. It's a futsal ball. Brazilian game, we play it here every Sunday. There's 20 guys coming out. But anyway, he explained it like this. If he drops a ball... Well, the law of gravity tells you it's going to what? See, it kind of just bounces dead. That's why you know it's a futsal ball. The other ball bounces up higher. But anyway, you, you, you drop this ball, ball down, and of course it's going to, the law of gravity tells you it, it's, going to, it's going to fall. But what if you were to drop it down and you grab it in midair? You see, here's what he said. It wouldn't be violating the law of gravity. It would be merely intervening. And I love these words. And certainly if God exists, he would have the ability to intervene in a world that he himself created. Isn't that an awesome way to explain it? That's what God does in miracles. He intervenes in the law of nature. For us to think, wow, what happened to my ribs? It was incredible. Strobel, in his book, he defines a miracle this way. Um, he uses a professor of, uh, at Western Washington University to say it like this. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is temporary, that is a, a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. That describes my miracle to the T. Temporary exception because I'm going to be out on the soccer field thinking as a forward I can always out jump the goalie and he's going to hit me. I'll probably have broken ribs and my wife will be mad at me again. But that's okay. That God would act in history. I hope you wouldn't find it as we go through this series hard to believe that that's what God does. He acts in the world today even still. Because the scriptures, this Bible is a book full with filled with historical, accurate, eyewitness events that have seen miracles. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about signs and wonders. I want to open up your Bibles, please, if you could. John chapter 5. John 5, one, uh, verses 1 through 15 we'll read. Um, and as, we, as you open the Bibles, what, what you're going to see and notice at first glance is that Jesus is going to perform this physical healing to a man it seems like a simple story. He's gracious enough to do it, to heal a man for a very long time. But here's what I want to challenge us to do. 
just as Pastor RJ started this series, that we would look and see how these physical signs point to something greater, point to a spiritual meaning. I love, I mean, Jesus is the master communicator. He, he has double meanings all over the place. John uses this writing style in the same way. If you think about it for a minute, as you, you, you place your, your hand at, on John 5 there as a marker, um, think about this. Our first sign was Jesus turning water into what? Into wine. And then in John chapter 4, we didn't read it, but John chapter 4, he talks to this Samaritan woman by the well where there's water there, and he starts talking about living waters that are going to live inside you, that stream out of you. Then John chapter 7, he says this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. What's that about? I mean, really actual water? Or is he talking about something spiritual? That the Holy Spirit would flow out of us. In John chapter 3, when, when he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again, Nicodemus is saying, how can I be born again? Are you talking about physical rebirth? No, he's talking about a spiritual birth. And all throughout the scriptures, when he heals somebody that's lame or somebody that's blind, he's not just talking about the physical the healing that's needed, but he's talking about spiritual blindness and lamelessness too. So miracles point, our physical signs that point to spiritual meaning. So we're going to begin reading in verse 1 from John chapter 5. Sometime later, this is after we just heard that he healed with just one word, he healed that the royal official son from last week. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me me well said to me, pick up your mat and and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Seems like a simple story on the surface, miraculous healing. But as we find out, there's all kinds of spiritual significance behind it. So did you catch the question Jesus asked? Verse 6. Verse 6 says, Do you Jesus said, Do you want to get well? And of course, Jesus and the author John's writing this question. They're talking about this physical thing that's happened. But they're also, behind it, there's a spiritual significance too. How do I know that? Verse 14, Jesus warns him, stop sinning. You see, here's the thing about Jesus. 
He cares for our faith and our eternity much more than the physical ailment. Because the eternal and spiritual consequences are much more than what's going to happen to us physically in eternal life. Because think about it. We're all going to live. Whether we were with God in heaven or in hell separate from him for eternity. That's why baptism is so important. I'm so happy that these little ones are baptized and part of his kingdom. But think about it. 38 years of suffering. 38 years of suffering for this man, this condition that he's in. Can you think about how much despair and brokenness is in his life? And Jesus has mercy on him. He asks the man, I think, kind of a, an odd question concerning the circumstances. I mean, Jesus, who is God, who knows everything, asks him, do you want to be healed? That's another translation. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Or another translation, do you want or do you will to become whole? I think really it's a question that Jesus asks everyone in every generation. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be healed? Not just physically, but more importantly, spiritually. Because really it's a question of salvation. And Jesus invites us to answer that as we read what happened 2,000 years ago to this man. Would you like me to rescue you from the curse of sin? From how sin plagues you? If you do, then believe that's why I went to the cross. Believe in the miracle, that's why I rose again from the dead, to proclaim victory over our sins. Notice this man's answer. Do you want to be well? And you would think, he said, yeah, I do, really I do. Is that how he answered though? No, verse 7, it's kind of if he's, he doesn't, first of all, know the man who's standing before him. He kind of points the finger of blame, doesn't he, in verse 7? It's not my fault, he says. It's those who aren't able to help me went to get down to the pool when it's stirred. Well, what does water being stirred mean in a pool? Look at verse 4. See what verse 4 says? Ah, there's no verse 4. It goes from 3 to 5. But if you look at the footnote... The reason it's there in the footnote is that it's found in later and less important manuscripts, but I think it's worthy of just clarifying how he said it in verse 7. So it's up on the screen for you to see. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one in the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever diseases he had. The first one into the pool. Gives a little clarification for us. 38 years this man... This is the life that, that he knew. He didn't know any other kind of life. If you lived in Jesus' day as a beggar, potentially you could, could lose a profitable income. I mean, that's how they lived. Beggars would have kind of an easy income. And so when you, hear, when you think about this question Jesus asked him, do you want to get well, do you think the man kind of thought twice? This is all I know. Do I really want to become well? What happens next? Or maybe he lost his will to, to be cured. I, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is this man really doesn't have any kind of faith or spiritual insight. He doesn't know who's standing before him. He's concerned about the water and that's it that could maybe make him well. He's looking at any other different place other than Jesus to be made well. And isn't that how we are? That's how we are. We don't look to Jesus first. We look to whatever might help me physically or emotionally or spiritually. We don't look to Jesus first. 
We look for our physical needs to be met and rarely do we think about our spiritual needs. See, the man wasn't looking at this on spiritual terms, but Jesus was. And really, Jesus, he just kind of ignores this man's response. If you look at verse 8, I don't care about verse 7, about the water stirring. No. Verse 8, get up. Pick up your mat. Walk. The man was healed immediately without the power of the water or angels stirring it. Jesus didn't care about that water. He was powerful enough with one word to heal this man. One powerful, one life-giving, one life-affirming word. One word, he's healed by the creator of the universe. I think it's so awesome. Awesome for me to understand that as he heals this man, this man didn't ask to be healed. Just like I was out in that lobby with this lady praying over me. I didn't ask to be healed. I had no idea that was going to happen. But Jesus would take the initiative. Jesus would take uh, the, 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 the way that he would start in any of our relationships. I think of these babies coming, right? Their parents are bringing them. They have no idea what just happened to them. This is how our God works. This is how he works. He always comes to us first. And we wonder, I think at least I do, when I, when I read a story like this, why would he choose this particular individual? Why would Jesus do that? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like he's deserving of it, and it doesn't, he doesn't have any faith, right? The miracle reminds me it's just not someone's great faith or deep trust that leads Jesus to heal. It's not. He does whatever the Father has called him to do. And we don't know why some pray for years for healing, they never get healed, and why others are healed immediately. We don't know that, but that ups, that's up to God, isn't it? Because in the end, he will truly heal us physically. But isn't what's most important that he would heal us spiritually now? See, this miracle event, this sign and wonder, it's so rich with double meanings. And for the Jews who knew the Old Testament, if their eyes weren't blinded, and instead of focusing on these religious laws, they might have comprehended it. But it's rich with theological symbolism and spiritual meaning. When I read the book of John, I kind of think it's the way C.S. Lewis would write in Chronicles of Narnia where there's so many images of who this Jesus is and themes that you need to pay attention to. So for the, the last part of my message, that's what I'd like to do. Point out some of the physical aspects of a miracle that happened to point to deeper spiritual meaning. So the first one is this. It happened on a Jewish feast. Happened on a feast or, or, or a festival. We don't know which one specifically, but when you think about the feast of, of, of the people of Israel, what, why they had to celebrate that. There were really three high holy days. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. If you were a good Jew living within 16 miles of Jerusalem, then you had to come to Jerusalem for every feast. If you lived outside of that, then you were expected to come once a year. Jesus was a devout Jew, and so he made a pilgrimage as often as possible, coming inside Jerusalem, going out again. As, as we heard uh, last week, Pastor Joe talked about that. And at the Jews, they, they celebrate this because they want to remember how God was actively involved in their history. And wanted God's blessing and wanted to see God please be active even now in our history. And so when Jesus performs this miracle, what he's saying is, I'm trying to tell you, I'm active right now. God cares. God knows. He still is involved in this world. That's what is important about the feast. Number two, the location of this miracle has some spiritual significance too. Verse two, it tells us it happened near the sheep gate. 
Do you know in the scriptures that uh, Jerusalem had 20 different gates that you can go in and out of? 20 different gates. There was the east gate. That's where Jesus enters on Palm Sunday. There's a beautiful gate. That's where Peter and John heals a lame man after Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a lion's gate. That's where Stephen was stoned. There's a horse gate, a fish gate, a dung gate. Yeah, appropriately because it leads to the city dump. And then here's the sheep gate where lambs were brought to be sacrificed. I mean, talk about spiritual significance, right? In John chapter 10, then Jesus would say these words, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. It's no coincidence that he's doing this at the sheep gate because Jesus is the gate for the whole world. He's the only name by which we must be saved and fully healed and made whole. Amen? It's a physical healing that God orchestrates to show this truth. Number three, we already uh, kind of talked about living water and you find it in John 2 and John 4 and John 7. But this event, it took place by water, by a pool. It was named Bethesda. I did some research. I found out in the 1950s they dig up this ancient biblical site of Bethesda. Archaeologists unearthed a rectangular pool with a portico on each side, which supports what John writes about the five covered colonnades. These five covered colonnades also point to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. It's a picture of purification and cleansing physically, but more importantly, spiritually. It's all over the place in the Gospel of John that God would cleanse us, wash us, make us born again or born from above. How? By water and the Spirit. Last point, fourth one, the healing happened on a Sabbath. Verse 9 says it this way, it happened on a Sabbath, and if you read the remainder of the chapter, you're going to see how much of an uproar that it caused for these Jewish leaders because all they cared about was Jesus. They, he broke a rule. And they were spiritually blinded to try to tell the one who created the Sabbath that he's sinning by healing somebody on that day. You see, Jesus' miracle, to make it on that day, it helps us understand that God is always at work. Even on the Sabbath, there's never a day when he stops work. I mean, think about it. If God decided to take a break, we'd be toast. Right? But in the scriptures, Jesus says, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, over the years, the Jews, they just made up so many rules and regulations, human laws and traditions that helped them to not see what Jesus was doing here. It's a simple question. Do you want to become whole? Do you want to be made well? See, to become whole is nothing more than being born again. Being born from above. You see, Jesus, he's more than this pool of water that can just heal one time, one person at a time. Because his will is that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And what he, he says to everyone, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Walk new again today because as sinners, we like to lie in the mat that we walk in, don't we? Or that the, we like to lie in the sin uh, that we, we, we lay in. Does that make sense? I'll say it this way. He raises us each and every day from the mat of sin that we like to lay on. That's better. 
That's what he does. Each and every day, we can remember whose we are. We're made his own in the waters of baptism. This reminds me of baptism. It really does. Forgiven, washed, made clean. Romans chapter 6 says it this way. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And because we're sinner and saint at the same time, because we're called apart in the waters of holy baptism, doesn't mean that we are going to be sinless and perfect. No, that old Adam is there all the time and we fight day in and day out. So we need to be raised up new each and every day. That's why I come to church. That's why I hope you come to church, to realize this is who you are. Washed, made clean, born in you, rise up again to live a new life. As we continue this sermon series with signs and wonders, I've, if you take out your message outline, you turn to the back of it, I've, I've given you nine questions to consider this week, and actually not just this week, this whole rest of the month, and I'll tell you in a minute why. And, and the questions, they, they're, they're just intended for you to reflect and think about miracles and healing and being made whole. And just asking God in your quiet time, in your prayer time, what do I need to be healed of? What is it? What's my impediment? Is it lifelong? Is it just recently? Did it, did it originate outside of me? Or is it self-imposed? What's standing in my way of spiritual growth and closeness to God? What things need to be changed to be whole? And are there things that I need to let go of in my life? Think about that. Are there things holding, are things holding on to you? Are you holding on to them? Things like anger or nursing some kind of injustice and hurt from years ago. Holding on to grief, maybe, or someone who you once held dear. Are you holding on to a destructive habit, wanting to be healthy and whole, but not willing to stop that habit that you're in? Think about that this week. What do you need to let go of? And I'm curious, has your perspective on miracles changed just listening to this sermon? Do you believe in them? Do you need one in your life? Or does someone around you need one? Will you pray for the Lord to intervene? Would you pray boldly that he himself would intervene and act to perform? give you a heads up, the end of the month as I preach on John 11. After I preach, I'm going to give you some time. And if you're willing and if you want, there will be prayer teams here. You're going to come down and just say, hey, pray boldly for me because I can't. And ask God to heal you of whatever it is. Maybe it's a physical. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's spiritual. You'll have that opportunity at the end of this month. If you have a friend, bring them. Can we pray boldly? Because we know a God that is still alive and still acts in history is willing to take care of us. Amen? Amen. That's who our God is.